So God has called us, would you agree, to glorify Him, to worship Him, to serve Him as we serve one another, because God is glorious, He's too splendid, He's too beautiful to keep to ourselves. And we desire to proclaim the gospel, amen? We must speak of this character of God. Our desire is to make Him known in His holiness and His justice and His mercy in His love. And these things we desire to do because God first loved us. And so we love God as He gave us, He's given us the Spirit by reflecting who God is. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And, and He no longer calls His people servants, but He calls them friends. We are called to have this friendship with God. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our mind and, and soul and strength. And we are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love those who persecute us. We are called to love our enemy and befriend all people that they may know Christ. But there is one thing that God calls us not to love and not to befriend, and not to have affections towards. In fact, this kind of friendship and this kind of love separates us from Christ. This kind of friendship and this kind of love, in actual fact, will have to be examined in our own lives if we truly belong to Christ. It is a friendship that is contrary to all that Jesus is. You know what that friendship is? Friendship with the world. We are called not to befriend the world. Our passage this morning is found in James. So if you can turn to the epistle of James, as we have seen many tests that James has given us. This is just another one of those tests where James is encouraging the church to examine a deep devotional love for Christ and how they are walking with Christ. And at the same time, he leaves us with a bitter taste always do I actually belong to Christ? And James will do this once again in this passage as he's following from last time when we looked at the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from the earth. Now James is expressing a warning not to have friendship with the world. I want to tell you this, beloved, this topic, I pray that you will hear and you will hear well. It is a kind of a topic that we ought to examine often. We ought to examine often. Why? Because we live in this world. And we ought to examine how often do I love the world more than Christ? How often am I going after the things of the world before Christ? It's very easy as Christians to say, that's not me, it's the one next to me. I can think of the next person who loves the world or someone else that needs to hear this. It's very easy. And I'm going to show you that James had in mind Christian, plural, not singular. So if you're in James, I've got three things that I want to look at. From verse, uh, from chapter four, we look at the just six verses. One, what is friendship? With the world. Two, what does friendship with the world affect? 
because we will see a spiral. It, it gets worse and worse. And three, what does the Lord offer to those who have befriended the world? So let's read from verse 1 together and we start to break this down a little bit. From verse 1, chapter 4 in James, What is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you can spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks of no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's a first point. What is friendship with the world? And I want to begin with verse 4, brethren. I want to begin with verse 4 before we look at the cause and, and the spiral of worldliness. It is good for us to know from the get-go, what does God think about this? What does the holy and perfect God who bought you by the blood of Christ think about worldliness and friendship with the world? What does the God of creation who caused you to be born again Think of worldliness. Look at the first verse, the first word rather, in verse 4. You, that's plural, adulteresses. I mean, this is not a joke, right? You adulteresses, this is, what, what, what is he saying? He's speaking to the whole church. And he's saying, you are an unfaithful. You are pretending to love me. This is what this word means. You are saying you are married to me, but you are what? You are prostituting yourself. We don't hear this much, right? That's exactly what that word is. You say that you love me, but you are not committed to me. You are telling lies and you're believing that they are truth. You say you want me, but you are running after someone else. This is committing spiritual adultery. This is a husband and wife picture that being married. And the wife says, I love you. I am submitting to you. I am committed to you until death do us apart. I will love you always. I will serve you with the heart of Christ. I love you so much. Only. You're not that good. You don't satisfy my needs that much. You, whether it's physical or sexual, I, I have to go somewhere else. You don't give me enough pleasure. So I'm going to commit adultery. And this woman looks at her husband and she no longer sees him worth of being called a husband. She no longer honors him 
She has no joy towards him. She slanders him, she gossips about him, and she doesn't care not much for him. This is what James is saying to a people of God. You are prostituting yourself to the world. This is what God's word says. We see these pictures all through the Old Testament. When God was trying to bring Judah back to himself, he sends the prophet Ezekiel. And this is what Ezekiel wrote. Verse 32 of chapter 16. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. This is frightening, right? Because he, James, is saying, you, you people of God. And then he goes on to say, don't you know? He says, you adulteresses, do you not know? And the word in Greek is in the perfect present active indicative, which means this, don't worry about all that, that you made a covenant with me you knew this in the past and it's present right now. So knowing that I hate the world back then when you were born again is very much alive and active right here, right now. If you are a Christian of God, when you were born again, you would have known that God hates all of this and you forsook all of this and you cling to me and you were married to me and you said, yes, I'm going to be your wife. I love you, Jesus. I am willing to forsake everything. And what you knew back then, you would know now. And you should know this, that the Bible says, do not be conformed. Where? With this world. But be transformed. You're not meant to be as part of the world. If you're married to Christ, then you must be against the world. And you're meant, you're meant to be transformed. How? by the renewal of your mind. Don't you know? You will know this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And then you will have to examine. If I'm continuing this way, you know what the scripture says in First John? Because if you continue this way and you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And you would know then this, no one can serve two masters. You cannot love God and say, I love the world. You, you are not going to be married to somebody and say, I'm only going to come to you half-heartedly. You will know you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and wealth, God and the world. You will know that if you were of the world, the world will love you. But Jesus says, but you're not of this world. I took you out of this world. Why do you want to prostitute yourself to someone else? And you would know that the Lamb of God who's preparing a place for us, the bride prepares herself and adorns herself for the Lamb of God, not for the world. The bride of Christ is supposed to draw near and closer to Christ all the more as the day approaches and not go after other gods and be friended with the world 
and prostitute herself to the world and its pleasures. You see, Israel knew this covenant as well. They knew the covenant of God as a nation, but not all believed. They all were fed by the faithful, the faithfulness of God, but not all of them were faithful. They all received the blessings of God, but not all of them were thankful. They all saw the deliverance of God, but not, not all of them were delivered in saving faith. James is taking up the same picture here. And there are people in our congregations today that they are affiliated with us. They understand the covenant love of God. They understand it. They might even accept it in their mind. They might even believe it. But they don't belong to God. He's, James is saying here to believers, don't be united with the world. Don't give Jesus only half of you. Jesus will accept nothing less but all of you. We need to acknowledge this. I mean, if we're talking about the unbeliever, and James is talking to a believer here, he's pointing at Christians, doesn't that make you more sick in the stomach? That I'm the one who says, I love my wife, only for my wife to find out I'm having an affair. You say, I love my husband only so that your husband can find out you're having an affair. We need to acknowledge this. The same God who instituted the holy matrimony between a man and a woman to be united is the same God who ordained Christ to be married to the church. And we do not want to have an unholy affair with the world, right? It's easy, beloved, to say, this is not me. It's easy for me to think of someone else who loves the world. And I'm going to show you through the scriptures the reason why you would do that. You would justify yourself. Very easy. I pray that God will open our hearts how quickly, how easily we can be enticed by the things of this world. Not hard. And James goes on, we're still in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world? This word, phileo, is a word that doesn't just speak of friendship or kiss. This speaks of an affection that is set upon another person. It is talking about an emotional attachment, a desire that two lovers would have to come together. It speaks of an intentional action. It is a love for another. Do you not know that friendship, this affection, this love, this willingness for you to put yourself underneath is making you an enemy of God. This kind of friendship, let me tell you, this kind of affection, you know, you heard it say, love is blind. Exactly what this does. It blinds people from the truth. 
A person who will commit adultery and have an affair on the wife or the husband, do you think they actually tell them the truth? Or they are blinded by this or they hide it? You hide it. But I'm here to tell you something. God is going to expose those you are befriending in the world. You cannot keep it undercover. Just as much as you, if you're committing adultery, it won't last. You'll be exposed. And I want to ask you, this is hard stuff. But let me ask you, the Jesus that we sing to, where is he here? Where is the lover of my soul if I love the world? Where is he? Where is the Christ who died for me? Where is my first love? What happened to him? He's not here. What happened to me? Being thirsty and hungry for righteousness. You adulteresses, do you not know that this friendship, James is saying, this relational, loving, self-indulging, self-glorifying, self-exalting, self-promoting, self-enjoying friendship with the world is separating you from God. Don't you know that? Jesus says, I called you friends. Phileo, it's the same word. I called you my affection. I called you my love. I called you my bride. You are no longer a slave, but you are my desire. And God says here through James, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that desire, all of a sudden you've got it for the world. Don't you know that that desire is going to separate you from God? What is the world? It is the love of having things, stuff. I want her husband, her wife, her car, his bike, his teeth, his home. It's having an obsession for possession, wealth, health, power. It is turning what you're meant to be in ministry in. You're meant to minister for Christ. You're meant to live for Christ. Instead, you'll want to make heaven here on earth. If that's the case, then let me tell you something now. Don't listen to this sermon and maybe download something from Joyce Meyer. Or maybe something from Joel Osteen, because they'll tell you heaven is here on earth. No. Because if that's your best life now, woe is you. Because my best life is yet to come. It is finding satisfactions and pleasures in this world. That's what this is saying. It is a false assurance of peace and joy. This is sin. And what James is saying, that these affection, this phileo, this friendship will separate you from the love of God. The world offers all the opposite of what God will give you. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, wealth, fame, popularity, relationships, possession, you name it. All that's got to do with self-indulgence. And this person who does these things, according to James, cannot possibly say he is a friend of God. No woman 
will get married or no man on that wedding day and say, I am sorry, honey. I love you. I'm about to marry you. But you know, I have some of me still attached to somewhere else. Nobody does that. In our sinful state that we are, nobody will marry a wife or a wife, a man. If the man or the wife says, I have only 1% set up on prostituting myself somewhere. Well, that's okay, honey. We can get married. No one does that. And when we come to Christ, we don't do that. Now, should we have the unholy affairs on him then? If we say we're being faithful to our own spouses, how much more faithful then should we be to the lover of our souls? It defeats the purpose of marriage, right? And here's God. He says, you adulteresses. I, I, I tell you something now, and I'm going to show you in a minute when we get to verse 5. I wished in my sinful flesh when I was studying this, and I've been wrestling with this text, I wished in my sinful flesh that he was only talking to unbelievers here. But he's not. He's talking to Christians. I wished because that would make me feel better. But he's not. He's talking to born-again believers who are prostituting themselves with the world. And that is, that is really scary. It really is. So that, that is that it's our first point. Our second point, what does friendship with the world then affect? So read with me the next four verses from, from verse 1 to verse 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. And we'll look at verse 4 a little bit more later. You see, here we see the source of the problem. Befriending the world, how it begins to affect everyone else. This is a spiraling down. It becomes out of control and it waxes worse and worse. Where does it come from? Where do these fightings come from? Where are these conflicts? James is saying, by the way, James gives us the answer. He gives a rhetorical question and then he gives us the answer. Is it not the pleasures that are within you? <clears throat> The desire to be befriend in the world, it is rooted internally. It begins from within. It begins from your heart or your flesh, depending on your position in Christ. It is a war that begins within at first. And then it is reflective externally. It begins in your thoughts and your emotions, your inner man. It begins to, to, with you having taken your eyes of the Lord and then your thinking begins to change and things you once saw as sweets, they become bitter to you and the things that you once saw bitter, you seek after them and they are now sweet to you. And James is saying here, sure, believers obviously are having conflict somehow. And there is disagreements. That's true. And that can happen in the body of Christ. We see that 
in the Corinthian church. They had fights and quarrels in favoritism towards elders. One chose one over the other. They were suing one another. They were being unfaithful. They were immoral, idolaters. They were taking communion in an unworthy manner. We see the Galatian church devouring one another. The Ephesian church who was not united in spirit and Judea and Syntyche did not actually live in harmony in Philippi. That's true. That can happen because of your desire are not met. Your sinful desire, let me stress on that. They are not godly desires. They are sinful desires. But I want to warn you, as we keep reading, that if a person continues in a state like this, in a state of bitterness and conflict from within, never reflecting the character of God, always angry, always upset, never joyful, and it's burning up inside, and then it starts to be reflective to people continuously. I have to warn you, as James warns us, you must examine your claim of faith. You must. All we see James here is saying that worldliness begins within and it starts to be in you. It is actually causing your soul to be in turmoil. Your own soul first. And you're fighting your own soul first within you. And then it says, is not your pleasures in you? By the way, this is the word hedonism, which speaks of an affection. An emotion, a seeking desire to bring pleasure, and you're not going to stop until it's fulfilled. It's an uncontrollable desire. Such pleasure. Not good pleasure. This kind of pleasure, you're supposed to have it only for Jesus. Only for Jesus. You want to study the word hedonism? It's only supposed to be for Christ your affections and your desires and all of those emotions are supposed to be for Jesus only. But in this context, it says, they are waging war. They are waging war in your members. You, you, are, you are fighting with inside of you. But it can't stay there. It has to be expelled. It has to be expelled. These are pleasures of self-gratification. And there is a war that's going on. Listen, there is one war that we are called to have. And it's what? It is to war against the flesh. We are meant to war against our sinful nature. We are meant to war with it. You see? James is saying you are warring with this. You're going with it. And you're not going to rest until you get it. You're not going to rest. Friendship with the world, even though, let me tell you something now. Yes, it is your sin against God, but it doesn't just affect your relationship and your fellowship with God. It affects your own personal life and it affects people around you. You cannot keep this undercover. In due time, this love, this desire, I want and I want and I'm going to get it. And until I get it, I'm going to fight and I'm going to quarrel. God will expose its ugly head. 
to people around you. The head will pop up and people will see it. It will be exposed. How is this exposed? Beloved, look at verse verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. If I don't get it, I'm going to kill someone. If I don't get it, this is a lust, this is a sinful desire. You're running crazy about this. And you're not going to stop until this is fulfilled. You are coveting. You are desiring a sinful thing. And when the desire of the flesh is not met, I'm going to kill someone if I don't get this. Now, sure, this is figuratively. And what happens here is your hatred now becomes your friend. Your anger is now your companion. He's right next to you all the time. And you become hostile towards everything and everyone, even if they are trying to help you and steer you back to Christ. And it's only a matter of time that this spiral turns into complete destruction and ruin in your life and the people around you. Let me give you a little, perhaps, a little example to examine how this spiral can start to begin in our own lives. You come to church, you were once the first one here, now you're the last one in. You come to church, you sit down, the sermons who were once tasteful, they become tasteless. They're for someone else. There is no conviction in your life anymore. Nah, I've heard repentance before. You cannot wait until the sermon's done. Your heart and your mind are somewhere else. But you're here, you're ticking the box. And you will justify yourself. In actual fact, here's another one. You'll walk out of here angry at what you heard. You'll be angry. You'll be justifying yourself. You'll say, I think the preacher was looking at me. I think he actually had it in for me. Where he should have been thinking of someone else. And we go on with our merry life. I'm just giving you some examples of the spiral that starts to take place. You once used to sit at the front. Well, we don't have that problem here, Saving Grace Bible Church, because it's very small. But now you sit at the back. Cain, he was exposed by God. And he killed his own brother. Why? Because his sinful, lustful, and selfish desires were not met. So he killed his brother. David killed Uriah because he wanted his sinful and lustful desires to be met with Bathsheba. David's own son wanted to kill David. Because he desired to have his position. And the Pharisees, they killed Jesus because they coveted position and power. That's what this word is about. They were envious 
They were coveting. This word envious here in our text, beloved, speaks of continuous jealousy. Jealous. Downward spiral. It gets worse and worse. I am not happy. I'm not happy. It's easy. Look at your own life. Not happy with people around you. Not happy with the brethren. I'm not content. <clears throat> I'm envious. I'm, I'm jealous of this. I'm jealous of that. I'm jealous of this. Why? Because your heart is not settled on Christ. And so you lust and you fight and you have war. And people will suffer the consequences of that. Why? Because what you're wanting is sinful. And look at look at the spiral. How it goes down further and further. Look at verse 2. Look at it's going further. You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious. You're jealous. You're continuously jealous. So you cannot possibly obtain. Then it says you fight and you quarrel all the more. You do not have because you do not ask. Now let me ask you a question on this. If this person is falling down this much, down this spiral, why would you ask God of anything? This person who's fallen so much is starting to fall. You're slowly, slowly moving from your brethren, moving from your husband, moving from your wife, and you've got your own little world happening. You know, you want everything and at that time and nothing's going your way in your selfish way. You're not going to turn to God. You're going to turn away from God. You're not, you're not going to turn to God. You're going to run away from Him. You're not going to need prayer. I don't need prayer. I just need this and that. I'm lusting for this. I am not getting it. Why am I going to ask God? He never gives me what I want. So you don't pray to God anymore. That's your next step. Your prayer might look something like this. Thank you, God, for the meal. Amen. That's it. That's your prayer. And you do that every single day, seven days a week. That's your 38 seconds of fellowship with God. But, Ralph, I, I, I didn't get it. Verse 3 says, but you ask and you do not receive. Well, what? Some Christians, let's, let's, let, let's understand this. Some Christians are asking. Because that's what James is saying. Is James contradicting himself? No, he's not. He's saying some Christians ask, but what will they ask? According to this text, are they saying, Lord, I come before you, make me clean. Are they saying, Lord, my desire is to do your will. Or Lord, I need you. I am in trouble with my prideful life. I'm loving the world. Lord, make me clean. I want to love you. I desire you. I want you above all things. Is that what they're asking? No. They're not asking for that. What they're asking in essence in this verse is saying, God, leave me alone. Leave me unclean in this spiral, in my own sinful and lustful pleasures. But can you bless these lustful pleasures? Read the text. These desires are evil and wicked. Why did I not receive? Because they are asking with the wrong motives. And the word there wrong in the Greek means wicked motives. 
wicked, bad motive. Should God honor such a prayer? Should the lover of my soul honor my prayer if I come to him and say, Lord, I know I'm in sin. I, I know that I'm fighting and I'm quarreling. I know, God, that I want and I want and, and, and all of it is sinful. Please, God, I beg of you, give me this one sinful desire. No, he should not. And I will say, I will, I will submit to you that those of you who have children, if your children came to you, you would do likewise and say, no, I'm not giving you this because it's bad for you. So in actual fact, what we're seeing, God not answering this prayer, not giving it to them, is the grace of God. People are not calling to God because they are filled with their own satisfaction. And those who are calling to God, they want those sinful satisfaction to grow all the more. So James then continues and he begins to make this person. Do you see the spiraling down? Well, look at verse 4 again. Now you're going to see the peak of this. Now you get it. Why I started with verse 4? You adulteresses! That's how you would read this, by the way. You see that? James has painted this picture. What's adulteresses? It's you having wicked desires. It's you having sinful desires for the world. I want this. I need this. I desire this. I don't want you, God. And James says, you are an adulteress. You are sinning. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? You see, now he's making it personal. If you're like this, you are saying, I hate you, God. Hostility to God is hatred and aggression and bitterness and war. You're no longer fighting with your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and your husband and your children and your wife. This is a reflection of you fighting with God. It's a reflection, a reflection of you having hatred, personal hatred towards the God who gave you your husband, who gave you your wife, who gave you your car, your health, your children and fill in the blank. Therefore, he says, verse 4, we're still in verse 4. Therefore, now that you know all this, my beloved, and now he makes it personal. Whoever wishes. Now he's talking to the congregation and he says, if you wish. Sorry, I'm just pointing. I said, look, I was going, if you wish and if you wish. Personally. On your own, if you wish this now, I'm singling you out now. If you wish to be a friend of the world, if you are desiring personally to be a friend of the world, you are making yourself personally an enemy of God. You are not a friend of God. So he calls out the whole congregation and now he singles it to every individual person just like James has been doing all along and that means this for us brothers and sisters that you must examine yourself personally you must say do I desire these things am I at peace with God 
Because listen, let's face it. If you're at war, you're not at peace. If you're making war with God, you're going to lose the battle. But you cannot possibly be at peace while you're actually making war. And here's what James is ultimately saying. You cannot make yourself a friend of the world and think that you are a friend of God. You cannot. You cannot love the world and you cannot say, I love God at the same time. You cannot have fellowship with darkness and say, you're living in the light. You cannot choose yourself to be part of the world and part of Christ. You cannot live for the king of darkness in this world while you're awaiting for the king of light and of glory. You cannot say, I am married to Christ but I would rather prostitute myself to the world. We are called to love all that comes from Christ. We are called to have our affections and our desires towards God and God alone. And if we don't, then our affections are somewhere else. And we are at war with God and we are no friend of God. If your love your affections, your directions in your life, your will, your drive, your dreams, your goals in life, it's all about you, are bent towards the world and the pleasures and you're not satisfied until you get whatever it is, you fill in the blanks, you must examine what on earth is happening with you because you've just left your first love. You've left your first love now this brings us to our third point what does the lord offer to those who have friendship with the world <clears throat> and this has to be my favorite section of this because right now I'm, I'm pretty sure you feel like i've thrown bullets at you and you should because we live in this world i want to encourage you and i want to challenge you Please don't think of anyone else. Don't think that you're not loving the world. Somehow there is a problem with every one of us. We just have to examine that we don't go as far as we're hanging around the fence of the world just so that we can pick the ungodly cherries off it. We want to we make sure that we're in the sheepfold of Christ and we want to make sure that we're not out of reach where Christ will not reach because that's an unbeliever. So read with me, and this will be as an application for us as well, verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> Once again, <clears throat> verse 4, Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks of no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now stop there, we'll just read that verse, because let me tell you, this verse here, is one of the most difficult verses to, number one, to translate from the Greek and two, to interpret in English. And, and scholars have been, uh, uh, I'll explain that to you just, just a little bit, but not much. Uh, I, I don't want to give you a nosebleed uh, like I had. I, I am thankful for some godly men that I approached in this through the whole week. I want to be sure, thus says the Lord. Uh, because in the Greek, you have to understand sometimes when the Greek was written, it was not written, it was written all like this. There was no commas, no points, no nothing like that. 
So, and sometimes in the Greek, you don't have to say he, you don't have to say him. Uh, it's literally just implied. And, and in English, sometimes what we have to do, well, it doesn't say it, doesn't make sense in English, and we'll supply it, you know, because it's implied in the text. However, this verse here, let me just quickly say this to you. The Holy Spirit wrote this. Okay, amen? All right. The people who read this at that time had absolutely no problem interpreting it. We have to understand that, or else it wouldn't have been written this way. However, there's some commas, there's some dots, and some things that people differ from one another. So I, I don't want to bore you with all that. That was my headache and a couple of other guys who wrestled uh, this text with me. But let me tell you some of the, uh, the scholars where they differ. For instance, in this verse, when it says, or oh, do you think that the scripture speaks of no purpose? I mean, is James quoting some verse, whole Bible? Uh, what's he doing? Outside of scripture, I believe that James at the moment, he's quoting just the Bible as a whole. All right? Uh, not an actual verse. Some people say, uh, is this an actual quotation? Or is it a statement? Or is it two questions? Uh, some people say, is this the spirit of man? the spirit of God, the spirit of life. Uh, these, these are the problems that have come up with this verse. Now, I want to explain, like I said, only a couple of them, just so that we can understand what this is saying. So I have one verse from the King James Version, right? So if we read our text, sorry, guys, this is a little bit, of, just a little bit so you can understand where I'm going with this, okay? All right. If we read our text, it says, Oh, do you think that the scripture speaks of no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit, which is the capital S, which he has made to dwell in us, which is obviously talking about the Holy Spirit. The King James Version reads it this way. Do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit, little s, that dwells in us lust for envy? In which what this school of thought is saying is that Basically, the spirit that James was talking about here, he was quoting the whole scripture, but the spirit that he was talking about here is the spirit that lives in man that lusts for the things of the world, which means he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the sin of man, and the man sins after the things of the world like we've seen already, right? Um, and we would never disagree with this concept. You know, the truth is man is continually evil. And he's bent towards the things of the world and he lusts after him and he desires the things of the world. And of course, this is an application here and we see that from Genesis onward. Man is bent towards sin. We will not disagree with that. But I don't agree with the view. The other view is that the spirit of God here is talking, uh, the spirit here is the spirit that God gave man, all right? Not the Holy Spirit. And now God yearns for jealousy over that spirit to come to repentance, meaning God yearns for the unbeliever to come to repentance, right? So that they may have faith. And we will not disagree with that either in a sense of God, you know, wishes none to perish. He wishes all to come to the knowledge of the Son and come to repentance. So we will not actually um, disagree with that. But after, like I said, much wrestling with this text, I know I'm giving you a mouthful, but it's good for you to understand this, okay? All right? is that the context, I believe, that he's talking about here, it is the Holy Spirit of God. He says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks of no purpose? The whole of Scripture. He 
jealously desires the Spirit which He has made in us. It is speaking of the Holy Spirit that God imparted in a man who yearns jealousy and total loyalty and devotion from the believer. It makes sense with the rest of the context, right? God, who purchased his own church by his precious blood through Jesus Christ, he gave us the Holy Spirit to help us. He now passionately and enviously, with great longing, desires the church to be fully committed and devoted to Christ alone. The God of creation who has given us the spirit of love to dwell in us, he desires, he desires for the bride not to be friend of the world, but jealously as a husband and wife. This, the, the, there is a, a holy, loving jealousy that a husband has for his wife. I have a jealousy over my wife. She is my wife. I cannot have a jealousy over someone who does not belong to me. Not the way I have it with my wife. That would be sin. But I'm desiring that my wife is my wife. And woe to anybody who would come near my wife. You're going to see the wrath of Ralph. I am jealous for my wife. She belongs to me. She's mine. And she does not belong to anybody. This is what we are seeing. The Lord is jealous over his bride. How wonderful is that? Because let me tell you something now. If my wife committed adultery, I will struggle to forgive her. But God is so willing to forgive, right? I mean, we have gone astray. And this God is yearning. He desires for us, the church, to be with him. God says in the Old Testament, you shall not worship them nor serve them, false gods. For I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says, For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, let me tell you something really quickly. This jealousy here that God has is not a sinful jealousy. That somehow God is missing out on something. Someone took it from him. No. It is a loving, gracious mercy. And, and it's according to his faithfulness. He is so loving and he cares us so much for his children that it leads him to yearn for them. This is not a jealousy that somehow you got something God does not have. It's not a sinful jealousy. It's a loving jealousy as a husband and wife. And what's that jealousy? What's that jealousy leading these people to? Well, look at verse 6. But he, this God, this holy God, who desires you, this wonderful God who seeks after you, gives greater grace. You have gone into the world. You have befriended yourself to the world. You have prostituted yourself to the highest degree, committed spiritual adultery. And he says, come. 
He comes with his redeeming love of Christ and showering his people with his grace. And he says, I am ready and willing to forgive you. And he gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What a God. This is, a, this is an awesome God that we worship. He gives grace upon grace upon grace. It's shameful that we look in this section that James has in mind the church. Those who belong to Christ, the covenant love of Christ, and yet it is them that is calling. It's different if James was talking to non-Christians, right? A non-believer can do nothing but love the world. They are by nature enemies of God. But when we befriend the world, we make it onto ourselves to separate ourselves from God. And by default, we then become enemies of God. But those enemies that now we've made enemies of God, they're not like the unbelieving enemy. That same God who saved you by grace says, Come, and I will shower you with greater grace. I will fill you with my grace. Is there hope for me? Is there hope for me? If I've lived into the world, if I've gone astray from the Lord, look at verse 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud. He is against the proud though. He's against the one who lifts himself up, the one who is arrogant and selfish and defending himself, saying, I do not need God. And he continues to fight. He continues to have selfish desires. He continues to live in the world. God says he resists this person. And let me tell you, you have to examine if you're this proud. Because this is applicable to believers and unbelievers. If you are constantly proud in not coming to God, then you really need to examine your position and your possession in Christ. But, in contrast, He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who are broken and lowly and meek. And they come to God and say, Lord, I need you. I have sinned against you. And heaven, I have become a whore against you. You know, we don't say these words. You must study the Old Testament. And you will hear greater words than God says himself towards Israel when they were prostituting themselves with the nation. The Lord will show favor on those who come to him, on those who acknowledge that they are actually been living in the world, they are continually angry and having no joy in Christ. They're refusing to repent and they are refusing to come to Him. But let me tell you something now. You come to Christ with a contrite and broken heart. I want to tell you something. A lot of people think that they have to come to God. When God says come, is that they must fix and they must deal with their problems. Listen to me. This is the problem in the first place. You got all this problem. Well, good luck trying to fix them. You are a sinner in need of grace. 
So I'm going to speak to you who have not been born of God first. Is there hope for you? 100%. 100%. You need to acknowledge that you are a friend of the world. You need to acknowledge that it's only by God's grace and you will come at the foot of Calvary and you will see Jesus high and lifted up and you will bring all your sins and all your lust and all your annoyance and all your anger and all your hurts, all of it. And you say, Lord, make me clean. Oh, that is grace. That is the grace of God. You don't clean yourself. Don't be foolish. Don't think there are 10 steps to salvation. There's only one. Lord, make me clean. Lord, save me. These are just words. There's only one. Christ. Only Jesus. And only Him, only He can give you saving faith by His grace. It's not rocket science. I am a sinner. I have gone astray. I have lived in this world. I have loved this world. I am still stuck in this world. Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. Jesus says, this man. This one here who comes this way, he will be justified when he acknowledges his desperate need for the Savior. But then, as for you, my unbelieving friends, do not store up the wrath of God upon yourself, hearing this truth week in and week out. And you put this in a, in, in a cup, you know, in a cup of knowledge up here somewhere. And you go, wow, that was nice. I'll put this up here with the rest of the other Jesus stuff. Whatever you learn, throw it in the bin and fall at the foot of Christ. And he will give you grace. But then I must address my beloved church, my beloved people of God whom I love with the affection of Christ. I've got a few things that maybe you must examine. Do you want what the world has? Do you desire what next door has? And will you, are you one of those who will not stop until you get it? And by the way, this could be a holy thing. It can quickly turn into an unholy thing. Maybe a position, status. And quickly turn into an unholy thing. Are you the one who fights and gets angry to a point of murder? In other words, you are holding bitterness and anger and unforgiveness in your heart according to Scripture. James says, this is your spiral, spiral down in being friends with the world. Do not kid yourself. Don't think that being friends with the world, it's only you going out and going to nightclubs. Don't think that being friends with the world is you going out and smoking drugs. It's not. That's not what James said. These are the extreme, in a sense of revelation of what's happening in your heart. But it's very, very subtle. Very subtle. And if you've gone astray after the things of this world, if this is you, let me tell you, Solomon, who had everything at his 
feet. In an unbelieving perspective, he says, all of it is vanity, vanity, grasping for the wind. I must ask them, beloved, if Christ were to come back today, and if Christ is looking down, is he content with our affections and friendship with him? Are we giving ourselves half-heartedly to Christ? Or are you the one who says, it's not I, it is not me, I love Jesus, I love so much Jesus, I think I do love Jesus with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and all that is within me, I am Peter, I will not deny the Lord. I think we need to examine, have you lost your first love? Is Christ your deep emotional desire above all things? Because let's understand this, losing your first love, okay, it can also mean this, that you're doing all Christian stuff. You're just doing Christian stuff. You're playing music, you're at the back with the mixer, you're ticking the box, you're coming to all the Bible studies, but your heart is not necessarily phileo, in friendship, with affections of love for Christ. I want to ask you, brethren, and I'll leave this to the Spirit of God, what drives you? I don't want to give you the application. What drives you? Where are your affections? Are you fighting with people? Are you at war all the time? Is there a war going on with your husband, wife, blah, blah, blah? Fill in the blanks. I don't want to give that to you. I want you to think about that. Listen to me, brothers. As much as the Lord draws unbelievers to himself, and only by his grace anyone can be saved, let me tell you something now. If you're a believer today, God gives you greater grace. Don't ever forget that. Only by grace we entered, and only by grace we come. Only by grace we can repent, and only by grace we can be restored. Please examine where are your affections? Where is your allegiance with the Lord Jesus? Don't think, once again, the world means you're completely out there and you're completely separated. No, God says, if you love the world, you have separated yourself from God. What a wonderful thing. He never actually separates himself from you, though. So let me read you this one verse and we'll pray. Hebrews 4.15-16 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May we run away from the world and its false friendship that it offers to keep us from Christ and flee into the arms of the lover of our soul and friend, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. My Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. This topic is hard, Lord. 
but he's true. Oh, Lord, how often, how easy it is for us to go astray. How good it is to know that you seek your bride. You seek your bride with holy jealousy and holy love. You go after us, Lord God. Oh, how often have we done this, God? How often, Lord, our affections are set on something else and someone else. We beg of you, God, that you would draw us to your throne. Reveal to us the hidden sins. Reveal to us, Lord God, that we do not love you the way we ought. That we are constantly, Lord God, at war. Because we are not fighting the war of the flesh, but we are fighting because we want and we desire sinful things. Have mercy on us, Lord. We pray that you will draw us to an understanding. Oh, how good you are. How beautiful it is to have all the joy and affection in Christ Jesus alone. That we will not go after the things of this world. That we will stay in your presence. And for those who do not know you, Lord, may you reveal to them that it's grace alone that saves. As we've even seen a clip this, this week, Lord God, of one preacher who would say that the man that was on the cross with Jesus enters into heaven. And how did he get there? He, known, he did not know anything about church membership. He didn't know about what it means to be justified. He did not know, Lord God, any theology, anything about Calvinism and the sovereignty of God and the Spirit of God, but he says the man in the middle says, come. Oh Lord, what a wonderful gospel that you will call people to come. And we beg you, God, that you will keep extending this hand of grace to our family and our friends. We are under your wrath, that you will save them, that we may glorify you together, Lord. 